You're listening to the Warrior Priest Podcast. And this is the Warrior Priest Podcast, midweek debrief number 105. And I am the Warrior Priest, Donovan Riley. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Thank you, as always, for your time and attention today. On the show today, I want to read a book by my brother, by another mother, Michael Cursina. Mike has written several books. We Make Ghosts, We Fight Monsters, We Wrestle Silently. He created SpotterUp.com. He is the host of the Whole Man Podcast, which I've had the pleasure of being on and talking with him, I think, twice now. But I truly am grateful and appreciate Mike. I'm glad he's in the world. I thank God for him every day and all that he does to help the veteran community, what he does to inspire and motivate folks like myself to be better than we imagine we can be. And so this new book he's written, We Make Ghosts, Heart of a Warrior, it's a 365-day devotional. And so I thought it would be a good idea to read it today and hopefully motivate you to go check the website out, listen to the podcast, and buy the book. Because, at least for myself, it is much appreciated. It has inspired and provoked and motivated me in so many ways that I can't thank Mike enough for what he's done and for sharing his wisdom and his experience with the rest of us. So I'd like to begin then in the foreword, And then we will jump ahead in this devotional to the writings for this week. So the foreword to We Make Ghosts, Heart of a Warrior by Michael Cursina, a 365-day devotional. The night is chosen. Men of war come over the hills. They whistle and hum, making violence their priesthood, conferring death upon unholy men. I can see them. Can you see them? These legions of savages running wild. We make ghosts. They make ghosts. See the spectral lights upon the hills. See the big birds bringing big hurt to mongrels walking as if they are men. Men live and die in these firefights. I can see them. Can you see them? Their numbers increase all night long and it never ends. A ghost is supposedly the soul or spirit of a dead person or animal that can appear to the living. Sometimes the ghost manifests itself at a place, such as a crypt or a home. The spook's haunting of the region creates unease for any person who occupies that location. However, the place in which a ghost appears doesn't have to be a home. The ghost can appear in a man's own mind. And the phantom is a bad memory. The haunting memory is either weak or strong. It may or may not appear at regular times. However, it is enough to halt people in their tracks when they experience the apparition. Those who are haunted might wonder if they can ever get ahead of the visitations because they create psychological issues that cause disruptions in their daily functioning work school, relationships, and other important domains. We have all made choices in life that we deem as good or bad. Nevertheless, we can still experience hurt feelings. It seems 
through those choices that we made ghosts, and our ghosts haunt us. The ghost, the specter roaming our memory, haunts us until we experience many emotions. We can feel depressed, dismayed, wounded, punished, repentant, disappointed. We can feel a litany of emotions that make us feel uneasy about our past. Our ghost could be a lost or missing opportunity. We feel stuck and may want to change the past. Some of our ghosts appearing as bad memories eventually fade into the background and never reappear. Some memories gnaw at us and then return strongly at truly inopportune times. They don't seem likely to disappear. Can a man or woman get unstuck from their old think patterns? This devotional is meant for warriors who want to live in the present to get away from the hurts and haunts of their past. This book is meant to help, to help you get ahead in life by realizing that you are not the same person and that you shouldn't let the past retard you from growing spiritually and emotionally. You have more control over your mind than you might think. Hopefully you are inspired by reading this book. 365 pages of thought-provoking suggestions are here to help you healthily revisit the past, to keep you focused on the rewarding present and hopeful for a better tomorrow. This book provides structure and direction for your daily life, for spiritual formation and personal growth. Every day, sincerely devote your time to reading, reflecting, and then taking action to make your ghosts disappear or be less palpable. If this book helps release you in any way from some injury, or at least makes them sting less, I will be very happy. I hope you will be happy too. I do not propose what I write here is a cure for every ill, but I believe something within it can help you in your goal of being healthy. If we can get out of our heavy funk, if we can navigate outside these roads of war within our own heart, we will grow. I sincerely believe this, and I hope that you do too. Love someone in your heart every minute. Fight some kind of fight every hour. Teach someone one beautiful lesson every day. In war, be a terrifying person to terrible people. Guide and protect the weak. Work on new and certain old relationships and feel less that sting of regret. Rise each day with peace in your heart and a wonderful plan of action. Live deliberately. Live vitally. And if you are suffering from a severe mental or emotional issue, I recommend that you seek the guidance of a qualified counselor. And lastly, and I appreciate this most, Mike, scribble your notes onto some of the lined pages. That is the foreword to We Make Ghosts, Heart of a Warrior by Michael Cursina, 365-day devotional. All of us, 
no matter who we are. We suffer from ghosts. The regrets of the past will come back and haunt us like the ghost of Christmas past. And they have a profound and direct effect on the present. They can close the future off to us so that we see nothing but an abyss waiting to devour us today, tomorrow, five years from now. But that is our fate when the future is closed. It is a blind alley. Something that I learned from the Stoics is to learn from the past so that you do not have to regret it. But to play off of what Mike writes in the foreword, this is also how you silence the ghosts. It's how you cause them to stay buried. It's how you also protect yourself. To quote Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew when he speaks about demons, that you drive out one demon And he goes out into the wastelands looking for a new home. But when he can't find one, he returns. And he found the man like a house that had been unkept, uncleaned, unorganized. And so he went out and he found seven other demons. And those seven other demons were more powerful than the first demon. And they came with that first demon. And they all moved in. They all took possession of that man so that his later state was worst was worse than his first. Now, I know, as well as you do, that the regrets of the past are powerful. They can haunt us. They can be hyper-destructive mentally, emotionally, even physically. It's easier said than done to take the past, to control your thoughts, and to learn from your failures in the past. It is much simpler, much easier to live with regret. It's much like becoming addicted to a narcotic, getting addicted to cigarettes, getting addicted to anything that ultimately is destructive and harmful to you. Memories are the same way, at least in my experience, especially as someone who's a recovering addict. I have failed so many people, so many times, not just in the past of my teens and my 20s, but this week. And because I am the type of person who is pathologically thoughtful and self-reflective, I loathe failure and I loathe that I fail other people, especially when it involves me being so selfish so self-absorbed that I wasn't paying attention and people were harmed because of that. At other times, it's more overt that I didn't care whether I hurt someone or not because I was only focused on the mission and following through with my plan. And I ran people over. I dismissed people. I pushed people aside. I ignored and neglected them. And after the fact, even though they might forgive me I make amends, I ask for forgiveness. The hurt sticks to me like a bruise, like an edema. And it takes a long time to heal. Sometimes 
those regrets, those ghosts of the past. They're like the telltale heart by Edgar Allan Poe. The thump, thump, thump of the heart of the dead man under the floorboards. That no matter how much work I do, no matter how much distance I get from that event, no matter how emotionally unattached I am, it still haunts me. The other day, I was driving home from the gym thinking about when I was managing a restaurant in my early 20s. I was like 22 years old. I was managing a restaurant in St. Paul. And had I been clean and sober, I could have gone really far within that company because they had, I think, 12 different restaurants in the Twin Cities metro area. And I, admittedly, I was very good at my job. In fact, I was so good at my job that I stole from the company day after day after day and never got caught. Had I poured and focused that energy into being a good manager, a good boss, a good employee to the owners of the restaurant who trusted me enough to give me the freedom to manage the restaurant without them having to constantly come in and check and make sure that things were running according to the way they wanted it done, instead of rewarding their trust in me, instead of leaning into my skills and abilities as a leader, I exploited that trust and I manipulated and abused my position to profit myself. Now in the short term, I profited, but in the long term, it hurt me. It hurt the relationships that I had established because they were based on lies and deception. All of the money that I stole, I spent on alcohol and drugs. It was gone. As soon as I got it, it was gone. I used it up. And of course, after I left, I could never go back because I was overwhelmed by regret. The ghosts, those memories wouldn't leave me alone. And all these years later, 30 years later, I still regret that. It still hurts me because it's shameful to me. It's humiliating to me. Not just that I stole and I was immoral and doing something illegal, but that I hurt myself so profoundly because I allowed drugs and alcohol. I allowed my addiction to dictate my morals and my behavior. And especially for those of us who are addicts, in my opinion, in my experience, and only in my experience in recovery. It doesn't matter how many meetings I've gone to. It doesn't matter how well I work my program of recovery and sobriety. It doesn't matter how many times I read the big book. No matter how many times I talk about it. It's like there's this hole. <laughs> and it refuses to heal over. Refuses to scar over. And maybe you've had similar experiences in your life that you've changed, that you know that you are better, that you've grown, become stronger. You've changed completely from the person that you used to be compared to the person you are today. As I've said before on the podcast and other people, if I could go back in time and talk to my 20-year-old self from the 50-year-old Donovan Riley's perspective, I think my 20-year-old self would throw up. <laughs> Because we're, we're so different. We're not even the same person. So to Mike's point then, how do we silence those ghosts? One, as I noted, 
We learn, we study, we read, we engage in physical activity that humbles our challenges or beats down our ego so that we can function according to what is real and what is right in front of us versus constantly looking over our shoulder at a past that doesn't exist anymore. And opposite of that, looking, straining, trying to see the future, which also doesn't exist yet. If we're not going to live in the present tense, we are squandering our life. We are squandering the time that God has given to us, the most precious commodity that we are given. You can't beg, borrow, or steal it back. And so what can we do to live in the present, to be present, and not just have that be some trite cliche? So turning to March 21st, which would be the Monday of the week that I'm recording this podcast, the wild frontier. Do we tell our children to stop chasing their dreams? Then why do we keep telling this to ourselves? <laughs> I don't even have to read any further. People tell me this all the time. How amazing it is that I'm 50 years old and I'm doing Muay Thai and Jiu Jitsu seven days a week that I've written two books, that I do two podcasts, that I'm a full-time pastor, that I do all this stuff, writing articles, all this stuff. How do I have time? How do I have the energy? How is it that my body doesn't break down? Because I never told myself and I never accepted other people who told me to stop chasing my dreams. Somebody once called me the perpetual Peter Pan. I'm the boy that never grew up who grew up, that my body grew up into that of a man, but my heart is the heart of a child. That's not entirely wrong. Because no matter what I've done to myself to hurt and destroy that childlike sense of curiosity, creativity, and wonder in me, no matter what others have done to squash it, it just keeps fighting its way back to the surface, and it just won't shut up and die. And the older I get, the more grateful I am that God made me that way. Because in the midst of violence, in the midst of depression and melancholy, in the midst of gratitude and sobriety, that, that little boy heart, that childish vision of the world keeps coming back to the surface and keeps challenging me to question, have I quit chasing my dreams? Have I quit dreaming at all? Have I ceased being curious? Have I become so dulled by my experiences and by the world that I'm no longer creative, that I've lost my creativity? So do we tell our children to stop chasing their dreams? I hope not. So then why do you keep telling yourself the same? Why do you keep telling yourself not to chase your dreams? Who cares how old you are? Why does age matter at all? Why at 50 can you not do or chase a dream or a project, or take on a mission that you could have done at 30. In many ways, in my experience, I am much better prepared now at 50 than I was at 30 to enjoy and be grateful and appreciate the experiences I'm having today because I have maturity. I've been seasoned through those experiences. I've been made into a more sensitive person in the sense of listening and speaking and being self-reflective and being self-aware 
and being open to thinking outside the box and going through doors that previously I would have been afraid to open. So I think from the very get-go, this is a thought-provoking question. Why, if you don't tell your children not to pursue their dreams, do you stop pursuing your dreams? So now to get into the actual meditation. Well done, Mike. I couldn't even get to the reading and you already got me thinking. Some of us get dispirited by the enigmas in life. We dream under the same stars. We gaze upon the same shores. We are warmed by the same sun. And we are even birthed from the same dust. Yet we never feel like we are truly a part of humanity. How can we be surrounded by millions of people and yet feel so alone? Your loneliness is not a curse. It's a gift. And you have to use it or you waste it. I have seen through my own personal loss how men can turn sorrow from death and heartache into blessings. Break away from the world if you must, but when you return, share your gift with us. Share your wisdom. Share your pain. Share your love. Tell your tale. Tell the tale that increases the light in this world for men who are sitting in the dark. If you withdraw, you'll never bless the world with your presence and the knowledge that you could have imparted. You might be able to handle loneliness, but regret is another animal entirely. But remember that a lesson only lasts as long as you want it to last. Accept what cannot be changed and focus on what you can change. Get out of your comfort zone. Realize that fear and discomfort will always be there. Take action outside of your normal routine that is uncomfortable, but will help improve your situation. And read Education of a Wandering Man by Louis L'Amour. Yeah. Lately, past five, six months, I have felt more and more alone in the world. Maybe you have too. And it's not just COVID. It's not just the constant battle that I'm in regarding COVID and the guidelines and the constant propaganda about the vaccines. It's the social consequences of COVID, the social consequences of the drug companies working hand in glove with the government to essentially peer pressure and shame us into getting the vaccines, the constant doom and gloom coming out of the TV and on social media about getting them and not getting them. And if you do get them, how bad it is. And if you don't get them, how bad it is. But on top of that, Ukraine and Russia and China and inflation and this and that and the other thing, it's just doom porn 24-7. And I look around at my friends my peers, I look at people at church, I look at people in my community, at the gym, and I just don't feel like I'm occupying the same reality as other people nowadays. And I want to withdraw. I really do. I want to walk away and leave it, but that is impossible. It is an impossible and ultimately self-destroying dream. Because if nothing else, I can share my frustrations with other people who are frustrated to let them know they're not alone. 
I can share my resources with other people and turn them on to people like Mike, like Nietzsche and Jung, other authors. I can point you and hopefully motivate you to try out Muay Thai or Jiu Jitsu, to get active, to challenge yourself. Because as Mike notes, the pain is always going to be there. The darkness, that's always going to be there too. The loneliness is always there. The door is always open at the house of loneliness. Death and heartache and sorrow will always be there. We live in a sinful, fallen, evil world. And we are surrounded by millions upon millions of people who have been indoctrinated and brainwashed to do whatever they are told by authorities to do. And there is nothing that you or I can do to unbrainwash them, to help them get clear of the indoctrination. There are just certain doors that people will never walk through. You can open them. You can lead them to the door. You can try and drag them through the door. And maybe you do drag them through the door, but they're going to pull loose and run away and slam the door on the way out because they've been taught never, ever go through that door. Never ask those questions. Never say those words. Never behave that way. And there is nothing that we can do about that cultural conditioning. Mass form psychosis is real, and we see it every day. But that doesn't mean that we quit. It doesn't mean that we give up. It doesn't mean that we withdraw from the world in order to save ourselves, because eventually the world will come knocking on your door, and you can't hide from it forever. So why not choose to be light in the darkness? Why not choose to go into the darkness with a flashlight and a ladder and a gun in order to help other people who are lost and wandering, blind in the darkness, to let them know I'm here and I'm not a monster and I was in the darkness and I was led out into the light and so I came back to rescue you and to lead you out. Now, that doesn't mean that they're going to follow you all the way. Some will, a few, but not all, because some have become comfortable in their blindness. They've grown to love the darkness, like Bane talking to Batman in The Dark Knight Return Rises. Dark Knight Rises, yeah. So there is a time when we need to walk away, to break away from the world, as he writes. But use that opportunity to engage in self-reflection, in a time for meditation, thoughtfulness, to read, to recharge, to recenter and refocus yourself on the mission. And then go back out there. Fight the good fight of faith. Fight the good fight for others. Be a light in the darkness. Because for every 10 people that try and shout you down and silence you, one hears, one listens, one is ready to walk away from the darkness. And one can turn into 10 and 10 into 100 and 100 into a million. And suddenly, like Solzhenitsyn says and Live Not By Lies, we won't even recognize our society. So do we tell our children to stop chasing their dreams? No. We ought not to. 
We must not. In fact, that's why our society is suffering so terribly today. Because we are more and more closing the future off for our children. Not opening it up, but closing it down for them. So for those of us who pay attention, for those of us who've chosen to be light, be a light to the children. Maybe more than anything, be a light to the children. Inspire, provoke, motivate. It's like I've talked about Mrs. Olson and Mr. Pelstring, my fourth and sixth grade teachers, and how their punishment actually made me a better artist, got me involved in theater and band, got me involved in the art program and the music program, so that that carried me through my first four years of college. It got me scholarships. And then I graduated and found out I was qualified to work in a coffee shop. That's pretty much what my degree was good for. (laughs) But um, yeah, I don't think there's anything worse than a parent or an adult that squashes a child's dreams. So if if you wouldn't do it to a child, why are you doing it to yourself? Why would you do it to others? What's the worst that can happen? They fail? Okay. They failed. Find a different mission. Find a different dream to pursue. It's not getting to the top of the mountain that matters. It's the struggle. It's the climb. That's what matters. Because there's always another mountain. There's always more struggle. There's always more climbing. So do you enjoy the climb? Or do you live for the peaks? Because one will keep you going. Mountain after mountain after mountain. And the other, well, you get to the peak, you you completed the mission, you're done. Okay, what's your next mission? Oh, you don't have one because the whole point of this mission was to get to the top of the mountain and you got there. Okay, now what? Yeah, okay. You kind of lost focus there. You were so focused on reaching the top, you didn't realize that the struggle is the thing. Failure, losing, having your ego crushed. That's where the real growth is at. That's where the, where the real learning happens. That's when you're opened up to different and new possibilities. Not by winning all the time. Not by securing victory after victory. Not by reaching the peak. But by falling off the mountain. And being snapped to attention when your rope goes tight. That's when you learn. So now March 22nd, yesterday, uncivil. There are some things not worth saying to other men. That's why God gave us the ability to make fists. A gang of men savaged a man, a friend whom my brother struggled to defend. How odd that I just happened to be on that violent night in the same city. I chased the leader into an alley and beat him until I bled all over his face. He looked up at me from the floor horrifically. All I could see was a red face and white eyes. A week prior, my arm was cut open. That blood on his face was mine. Unbeknownst to me, the injury healed improperly, and as I strangled and punched him, the wound blew open, showering his face with ichor. He took off, sprinting in defeat, while I struggled to tourniquet my arm. 
we drove to the hospital with great speed. It's a fascinating thing when an enemy can become a friend and decency can come out of tragedy and God can make animals into human beings. 30 years after I beat a man for attacking my brother, they ended up in the same room gathering for a store book signing. Many of the people recounted in that tome were now aged looking, dead or very ill. Time was not kind to all. My brother's best friend, whom he defended against great odds, no longer spoke to him. How odd to lose a man like a brother. Odder still to see your attacker decades later in the same room. Each recognized each. Each brought their young child and with a simple handshake, each made peace. He was a widower. His wife passed from cancer. Time softened him. How odd that a man like a brother whom you would defend with your life would stop talking to you. How odd that an enemy's handshake could start a friendship. Throughout the event, their children played together as if there was never any bad blood and violence between these grown men. A new generation that had not known hatred. When my brother told me this story, my eyes wept. Every day is a day that can change your life and change who you were from the past. Bring more love into this world. Yeah. Bring more love into the world. Today, be authentic and give others the gift of the real you. Consider kindness before you speak. Don't discriminate who to be kind to. Reach out when it is less likely others will. Do this every day. Read Lord of the Flies by William Golding. Oof. Yeah. Kind of taking a different tact then, but riffing off of this. How often do we make enemies out of others who don't deserve to be our enemies? When I was reading this just now, I was reflecting on Bushido and the Hagakure and how we are taught by these great samurai warriors never to punch down, never to choose an enemy that you would not, in, under different circumstances, also be delighted to call friend. Our true enemy is supposed to be someone that we have to punch up against, someone that we can say, yeah, he or she is my enemy, but I'm grateful for that kind of an enemy. And under different circumstances, we could be friends, good friends. Every fight that I have had, every tournament I've competed in, afterwards, I have hugged my opponent and they have hugged me back. Before we compete, though, when I have approached my opponent, they're cool, they're standoffish, aloof, because they're preparing for the fight. 
And I, by approaching them and saying, hey, glad you're here. Thanks for signing up to fight. You know, best of, best of luck. I know it's going to be a great fight. I do that to psychologically size up my opponent to see how they react to me so that I get a kind of reading from them. Do I need to ramp up my intensity in the fight? Or can I kind of back off on the intensity and focus more on angles and technique and how to get in and out? We're sizing each other up before the fight. We're taking the measure of the other man. But once the fight is over, win or lose, one, I'm just grateful to be healthy and whole after a fight. But two, I have this overwhelming sense of love for the other person who I don't know them outside of their name and maybe the gym that they're from. I know nothing about them, where they live, whether they're married or unmarried, whether they have children or not, whether they just got through their battle with a disease, whether they're in recovery, whether they just completed a secondary degree and went back to college. I don't know anything about these people other than here's another fighter. And like I said, whether it's in victory or defeat, we hug each other. And afterwards, we talk. Like we've been friends for years. Because we shared an intimate moment that exists inside of the violence. And under different circumstances, I would like nothing more than for that person to be not only my teammate, and in some instances my coach, but my neighbor, so that I could get to know them better. Because when you fight another person, there's no filters, there's no walls, there's no bullshit. It's just you and another man fighting each other to the ground, enforcing your will upon the other. One's going to win, one's going to lose. And like I said, if you can walk away in victory or defeat, uninjured or only with minor injuries, that is a good fight. <laughs> that is a very good fight because I've watched guys blow out elbows and knees. I've watched guys get completely choked unconscious. I've seen plenty of people taken to hospitals after fights. But the intimacy that exists within the fight, within the violence, is why I keep going back. It's why I've devoted my life to martial arts. Not just to training, but to teaching. Because I've never found that camaraderie anywhere else. I've never found that sense of joy and satisfaction anywhere else. Nothing has made the world quieter for me and given me more peace than those moments. So on the other side of it then, choose your enemies wisely and soberly. Don't just call somebody that your enemy because they vote different than you or they have a different ideology than you or a different ethic than you. Even if they like different things from you. Don't be so quick to dismiss them and say, ugh, you're not worth my time. Because life, time, is the most precious commodity we have. Why squander it? Why waste your energy with negativity directed towards someone who doesn't deserve it and hasn't earned it? Now, on the other side, there are people that need to get punched in the mouth. I've met them. 
and I punch some of them in the mouth. But that's that moment. And what I've had to learn as I've gotten older is to let go of the moment and move on to the next moment. Be present now, not in the now that happened five or ten minutes ago or a day ago or last week. Again, easier said than done, but just like any muscle, you have to exercise it constantly and train it to respond the way you want to in moments of stress. There are people from my past who I have to remind myself have changed and are different people. And if I were to run into them today, they would not interface with me the same way as when we were younger. There are people who bullied me in school, who grew up to be police officers, teachers, own their own business, and I've run into them. And I've immediately gone on the defensive, prepared to just throw down because my mind, (laughs) my 50-year-old mind, my 38-year-old mind, it goes back to that moment when I was 16 or 10 or whenever it was. And I've forgotten in that moment that I'm not 10 anymore. I'm not a teenager. And the person in front of me isn't either. They have a wife and children. They have a career. They have a business. They've been changed profoundly by experiences. What's really wild, actually, this happened to me, now that I'm thinking about it. I ran into my biggest bully from high school once. And (laughs) he knew from his pastor that I had become a pastor because his pastor listens to my podcast, reads my books and everything. And so he was so excited to meet me and to say how excited and, and happy he was for me that I became a pastor and all these different things. And all I, could kept, all I kept thinking in my mind is, when I was in high school, you tormented me. You were the monster down the street. Like, I, what are we doing right now? Like, all of me wanted to kick him as hard as I could and take his legs out. And yet he's an elder at his church. He's a husband and a father. He's a law enforcement officer. And he's genuinely excited. And all I'm thinking about is, but when I was 17, it's like all these years later, I just go right back to that place. That's the ghosts that Mike's talking about. Because the man in front of me isn't the boy that tormented and bullied me in high school. He's a man. He has changed. He has grown. He's become a man of faith. And so here's my brother in Christ, who I want to kick so hard that I blow his knee out. And I just, I didn't know what to do. You know, this is a number of years ago now, but I just, I didn't know what to do. So I just walked away. I just said, thank you and walked away. And again, you can live with the regret that that moment was squandered and that I wasn't mature enough at that moment to appreciate he had changed and I had changed. I was just completely overwhelmed by the moment. And I reacted poorly and did my best to escape as quickly as possible. But again, he's not my enemy. He was my enemy when I was 16, 17 years old. But he's not my enemy now. In fact, he's nobody to me. He's just a stranger who knows me through his pastor and we're brothers in Christ. That's how it goes. And so I don't really have, and to be honest, I just, I don't have enemies like I used to. Because as I've gotten older, I realize what a waste of time and energy it is. 
If people want to hate on me, if people want to disrespect me and try and ruin my name by speaking negatively about me when I'm not around, there's nothing I can do about that. And their lack of appreciation for me, their even, even their hate for me, there's nothing I can do about it if they're not going to come and talk to me directly. And so I've learned to just let go of the noise, the people, their voices, their comments, just let it go. But also respect the fact that in every criticism, there's got to be a kernel of truth that I can glean to help me be a better podcaster, a better pastor, a better martial artist, whatever it might be. So even our haters, not our enemies, but just our haters, can actually be teachers to us if we are open and willing to go through those doors. We don't have to plant a flag on their criticism we don't have to sit here and look through our window at our neighbor every single day wondering when he's going to strike next, when there's going to be a negative comment in the DMs. Just appreciate the fact that no matter what you do in life, no matter where you go, no matter who you are, there's going to be criticism. There's going to be critics. You're going to pick up haters. And there's going to be some people that just declare you their enemy. But until they put their hands on you, are they actually a threat to you? As long as you remain consistent and real, as Mike says, not trying to be someone you're not, not trying to pretend or project an image out onto the world, what do you have to be afraid of? I've had so many people over the years for different reasons who have met me and said, you're nothing like what so-and-so described. And I said, yeah, you would have known that a long time ago had you simply called me on the phone hit me up on the DMs, I would have been more than happy to have talked to you after that. But we tend to listen to critics more than we listen to the person that they're criticizing. Because we want to be led. We want to be told how to think and act and behave. We don't want to take responsibility for our choices. And so we kind of adopt enemies. The enemy of my enemy, the enemy of my friend, we just kind of pick them up as we go through life. But I just don't think that's any way to live with that kind of resentment. And in the end, what does it benefit you or your family or your employees or your teammates? If at all possible, make peace with anyone and read Lord of the Flies. Read Lord of the Flies, and, and you'll understand what Mike's driving at here. It's a brilliant character study in human nature and society. So lastly, March 23rd, today, the day I'm recording this, Gambler. Mike writes, Timid men go to the same bars, seat themselves on the same stools, and every night drink the same drinks. They think about the same wounds, and know every day they lack courage to leave the same town not because there's any terror outside. It's because they know their hearts hold terror within. So true. What happens when we get comfortable? We get lazy. We become timid. Why? Because even if it's a bad situation, even if it's harmful and hurtful to us, even if it's something that's going to lead to a catastrophic result, the devil we know is always preferable to the devil we don't. I know what's through this door. I've gone through it before. It's open. 
that door over there is closed and there's noises coming from the other side. And I'm not quite sure I'm ready to go through that door yet. I'll wait till somebody else does. And then I'll make a decision whether or not to follow. And so as a recovering alcoholic, I've sat in the same bars on the same seats, talking to the same people, drinking the same drinks for a number of years. It's comfortable. It's safe. Which is ironic, of course, because you're killing yourself. But it feels safe because it's familiar. It's the path of least resistance. And everybody will forgive you because misery loves company. I think I've talked about it on the show before. I'm sure I have. But when I got sober, when I got religion, so to speak, I lost all my friends. All of them. They just kind of fell away one at a time over four, five, six years. Because the person that I was becoming, the person that I had changed into, was so different than the person that I was. And yet the same. Because I was struggling and I was learning and I was trying to figure out how to live sober and how to be married and how to go to seminary. And I was just trying to figure out how to be a Christian. <laughs> like everything in life, I felt like I was a fawn just trying to learn how to stand on his own legs. And it's really difficult to have friends when you are struggling to figure out who the hell you are from one day to the next. Because you're not the person you used to be, but you still kind of are. And you're not the person that you want to be, but you kind of are. And so you're always pushed and pulled between the person that you were and where you're coming from and the person that you want to be and where you're going. But again, you're not living in the present. You're not grounded in the present. And that creates a lot of anxiety and disruption mentally and just socially in your life. And had I known better, I would have withdrawn from my friends and just said, listen, I'm going through a lot of stuff right now and I'm just trying to figure it out. And... I just ask your forgiveness and your kindness. I'm going to go away for a while. I'm going to go dark. And I'll come back, I promise. And if you still want to be friends when I come back, I understand. If you do, and I also accept if you don't. When I got to the fifth and sixth steps in my program of recovery, and I had to make amends to people, I also had to talk to my sponsor and explain there are certain people that if I go to them to make amends, they're going to punch me in the face because they've got a lot of resentment toward me because of my past. And when my sponsor had to explain to me, there's a good time and a good place to make amends to people. And a part of that sobriety and learning to live sober is to also learning to exercise good judgment because maybe I wanted to make amends, but by going and invading their life when they had moved on, would be also opening up old wounds. So instead of reconciling with them, or at least asking their forgiveness and letting them know I'm taking ownership for my part in ruining this friendship, I'm hurting them. So is it really making amends if you know, you're calling them up on the phone and saying, hey, can we get coffee someday? Because I'd like to apologize to you. If that opens up old wounds for them and hurts them, that's not really making amends, actually. And so you have to be, you, you have to exercise good judgment when it comes to making amends, in my opinion, so that it's not, here's my list and I got to check off every name on my list before I come back around to the fifth and sixth steps next year. Don't do that. Don't trap yourself in that kind of linear thought pattern. Make a judgment call. Figure it out. 
There's some people I hurt when I made amends to them. They were so happy that I'd just gotten clean and sober and that I'd got my life together, that they were quick to forgive and hug me. And then there were other people who had very unkind words toward me and threatened me if I ever tried to contact them again. But also I understand why. Because I betrayed their trust. And I wasn't a good friend. In fact, I really wasn't a friend. I just used and exploited them for my own benefits. I knew when I was 21 years old that I was going to die before 25. I knew it. Because my life had become so unmanageable. I was doing so many drugs and drinking so much. I knew. I knew by 21, 22 years old that I wouldn't make 25. So when I hit my bottom at 24, 23-ish, 24-ish, I just, I was like, okay, well, I guess this is when I die. And why didn't I walk away when I knew this was going to kill me? Because the terror inside of me was worse than the terror outside. There was a bench worn out for my arrest. So (laughs) I didn't have insurance for my car. So I didn't have a valid driver's license for almost a year. So I was stealing from my employer. So you're going to die before you're 25 because of your behavior and your choices. What are you going to do about it? And the terror that gripped my heart knowing that I could not pull myself out of this nosedive that I was in, that I was going to get swallowed up by the abyss. That was more terrifying to me than all of the external pressures and threats that I faced every day when I left my apartment. And so Mike writes, I get moments that hit me out of nowhere and I fall to my knees. Some psychic residue left over from some garbage that I didn't deal with. None of us are going to have 365 good days out of the year. Get up. Dust yourself off. Sometimes it's just a tiny pebble that hit your armor. Drive on. Have hope and have heart. FBI agent, friend, and counselor Doc Band taught me how to reframe and refocus. When a moment hits you, work on stopping yourself mid-thought and focus on another thought. At one time, medieval thinking was to hide darkness in the dark, and during the Enlightenment, it was to expose it to light and reveal it for what it is. I'm of the thought to expose darkness and let it die in the sun. Hide no shame, no pain, no suffering. I'm no doctor, but have hope and have heart. Fact-checked your thoughts. Fact check your thoughts. Talk to someone who gets it. Attend a social gathering. Watch Leaving Las Vegas starring Nicolas Cage, which as an alcoholic (laughs) is a really flipping hard movie for me to watch. I've watched it once and I was good. I watched it after I got clean and sober, which made it more acute Because, well, the plot of the movie is a man goes to Las Vegas to drink himself to death. And he meets a hooker. And they form this relationship. But 
The whole movie is centered around one plot. He's going to drink himself to death. And so if you're in a bad place in your life, do not watch Leaving Las Vegas. But it is useful, I think, as an object lesson as regards what Mike's talking about. In the movie, Nicolas Cage's character has made up his mind he's going to drink himself to death and nothing's going to deter him. And in life, we make the same choices, like I said, when I was in my 20s. I just made up my mind I was going to die because there was nothing I could do to change my life. The police were out to catch me. Drug dealers were out to get me. <laughs> there, was, I, I, there was so many people who had my number that it truly is remarkable that I'm here today. And despite all those external threats, I was focused on killing myself. I had given up. There was no future past 25. There was no hope for me. I had reached that critical speed, that catastrophic speed that I was going to hit the dirt. My chute was not going to open. I was not going to correct course. I had reached terminal velocity. And by the grace of God, he pulled me out. But had he not, this conversation is not happening right now. Because I had made up my mind that what was familiar was more secure and safe for me, even if it meant an early death, than walking away from all of it. Walking away from drugs and alcohol, walking away from my job, walking away from my friends, walking away from my drug dealers, walking away from everything. And I meet so many people today, still, who are trapped on the same bar stool, in the same recliner, going through the motions. They're miserable in their relationships, miserable at their jobs, just miserable people in general. They have no hope. Their life is nothing but regret and self-loathing and misery. And as I've talked about before, you tend to seek out the company of others who are filled with self-loathing and misery as well, because misery loves company. So what can you do? Well, one, fact check your thoughts, like he writes. Make sure that you're not engaged in stinking thinking, as we say in AA. Check your thoughts. Are they real? Are they true? Or are you just making shit up? Because you're stuck. Are you lying to yourself? Do you know whether or not you're lying to yourself? Are you willfully blind to the truth? Then talk to someone who gets it. Seek out the company of those, again, who have walked out of the darkness into the light and have come back in to help people like you get out of the darkness. Talk to them. You'll recognize them pretty quickly because they speak the same language. They bear the same scars. They have the same look in their eyes. And I don't mean that metaphorically. I mean literally. <laughs> and get out of your head. Get out of your apartment. Get out of your house attend a social gathering, go to an AA meeting, go to a support group, go to any meeting of like-minded people that gets you out of your own head. Whether that means Muay Thai and Jiu Jitsu at a gym, whether that means a book club, whether it means going on a hike with other people, whatever it is, 
Don't self-sabotage by denying yourself the gift of others and their company. For me, that was the absolute hardest thing to do when I was younger, was to get out of my own way, get out of my own head, get out of my apartment, and seek out the company of other people who were beneficial to me. Because like I said, I surrounded myself with people that were not beneficial for me. And I had friends. I had real friends that, that were ready to help me, who wanted to help me, and I pushed them away. And I denied them access to me. And I kept them at arm's length, and it hurt me, and it hurt them in the end. And that's why we're not friends anymore, even though they live 20 minutes away from me. Do I regret it? To this day, I regret it. Do I learn from it? I try. But as I've said, it's easier said than done. And I try. I try to move on. I try to live my life in the present tense. I try not to look over my shoulder and worry about yesterday. But, you know, ghosts. When I get in a fight with another man, I can get a hold of him. I rolled with my coach again this morning. I can grab him. He's physical. He's real. He's right in front of me. And we're, we're locked in that present moment. We're in that flow state. And everything is good for that moment. But ghosts, you can't grab them. You can't punch them. You can't run away from them. You can't hide. Especially the ghost in your own mind. But there are things that we can do to silence them, to lay them to rest once and for all. And I think the first step is to simply be thoughtful and to acknowledge a lot of the stuff that I think about during the day is bullshit. It's all lies and mirages and wishful thinking and false dreams. Just so that I can kind of fool myself, hack my life so I can make it through the day. Because I am terrified to confront the truth, which is that I'm miserable about my life, my relationships, my job, everything about my life is sad and pathetic, and I know it. And that makes me feel sad and pathetic. But it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't. You just have to take the first step. Just get out of your own head. Make the effort. It's a muscle. Exercise that muscle and realize if you haven't used it, for a long time, or you've been using it the wrong way, it's going to be a struggle at first, but it does get easier. It gets better. And you will fail. And you will fall on your face. And you will experience pain and struggle, and there will be obstacles in your way. But as the book notes, the obstacle is the way. Which, by the way, if you've never read The Obstacle is the Way, read the book. It's amazing. It changed my life, literally. It just changed the way that I think about stress and obstacles and struggle. But I think this is the benefit of people like Mike for myself and I hope for you, is that you pick up a book like this, you open it up and you think to yourself, oh yeah, well, this book is going to help. Okay, it's going to help me get ahead in life. Oh good, another self-help book. Fantastic. There's not enough of those out there. Written by a former soldier. Well, that's, that's, you know, that's unique. Yeah, haven't seen that a million times. But if you just take the moment to open the book, to literally not judge the book by its cover, 
but to open the book and ask yourself, does this man actually have anything to say to me? Can this man actually speak to me? Maybe he does. Maybe he doesn't. But if you never open the book, how will you ever know? If you never walk through the door, how will you ever know what's on the other side? As I've said before, and when I read Mike's book, We Fight Monsters, on this program, that's kind of how we connected in the first place. Sometimes you walk around the corner, you walk through the door, and there is a monster. And so you just fight it. Maybe you live, maybe you die. But what are you going to do, turn around and run away? You can't outrun a monster. You can't hide from the dragon. He'll burn down your whole life. Sometimes you just got to embrace the fact that you're a wild savage and just let it out and fight the good fight. Even if, it, even if you know defeat is inevitable, you still fight the good fight because there's glory in that. There's a reward in that in and of itself to know that you didn't lay down and surrender and die. But other times, you go around that corner, you walk through that door, there's no monster. It was all in your own imagination. And much like enemies, we have to be careful that we don't make monsters out of people and things that are not monstrous. To project our own fears and terror onto other people and make them scapegoats or proxies for our own inner monsters. Likewise with ghosts. If you know someone who's alive, who you can connect with, who you can reconcile with, who you can make amends to, if it's possible, do it. Because again, you're not guaranteed tomorrow. If you have been negative towards your kids, if you've stepped on their dreams, if you've encouraged them to not dream, to not be creative and curious, check yourself and ask, what's going on inside of me that I'm trying to crush this child to cut them off from the future, to disappoint them now, to save them the pain later. That's you, my friend, not them. Don't do that to them. In fact, learn from them. Recover that childlike sense of, of curiosity and creativity and wonder. Go on adventures in your backyard, upstate, in another country, wherever it may be. Go on adventures in your mind. Pick up a book that fires your imagination. Have conversations with people that inspire you and excite you. There's so much amazing people and things in this world. So many opportunities, so many doors to open that are not locked. If you simply take the first step, take the initiative, step outside your comfort zone, and so I'll wrap it up with this because I think this really is the thesis of Mike's book and I'm, this is just my opinion, not Mike. Stop dying and start living. Make up your mind right now to stop not dying because what I encounter more often than not are people that are not living. They're just avoiding death and they call that living, but it's not. It's a life of fear and anxiety, and aimlessness, and hopelessness. Every day, just how am I not going to die today? 
Ugh. What a waste. What a waste of a gift that is life. Live. Live today. Live for yourself. Live for your children. Live for your spouse. Live for your teammates. But make the choice today. Embrace life with all of its heartache and pain, with all of its joy and wonder. Stop dying and start living. That's all I got today, folks. Thank you so very much for listening. Thank you. I hope that you got something out of Mike's book. And if so, I hope that you go check out the website and order the book for yourself. Let Mike know that you heard about him on the podcast. Um, Otherwise, as always, I've got hoodies and stickers available for sale. 50 bucks for the hoodie. I cover the cost of shipping and handling. I'll throw some stickers in for free. Just hit me up via email, Anchor FM, Warrior Priest Podcast. Otherwise, you can DM me on uh, Instagram, Warrior Priest, Jim and Podcast, or just Donald Riley, the Warrior Priest. That being said, then, uh, I'll talk to you real soon, Space Monkeys. Peace.